FilmNerds.com podcast series. I'm your host, Matt Scalisi. And in this series, we're going to be taking a look at six films that fit into the category we're going to call prestige blockbusters. And uh, we'll discuss in just a moment here. But first, I want to welcome in our guest programmer for this series. He is a filmmaker based out of Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, and he is a, uh, like many of the other contributors here on Film Nerds, he is a, a film and television studies graduate from the University of Alabama. And uh, he's, he's, uh, he's got a particular interest in this topic. He's, he's really sort of uh, always been the guy I like to turn to for sort of taking a little bit deeper look at, uh, at the, the mainstream film scene. And I'll just uh, I'll just go ahead and and bring him in here, Ben Stark. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hello, thank you. Um, so Ben, this is uh, this is a series that you that you've chosen. You chose the topic here, and you chose the six films that we're going to be looking at. Um, tell us your your definition of of a prestige blockbuster, and and sort of what what's the difference between that and say your run of the mill summer blockbuster. Um, well, I, I let's see. I guess I guess the academic definition i would make it like a, a prestige blockbuster it's a big budget film in today's in today's film's case uh it was only 18 million dollars so we can't like set it like over 100 million or anything like that but um but it's a bit it's got to be a big budget for its time uh and uh and it's got to be a sure thing a no-brainer money maker something that um, has has very high expectations, and people people are expecting it to be good, and it doesn't need to be good to make money. You know what I'm saying? Uh, like it'll just if if it's released, it'll still make money even if it's bad. Mm-hmm. But despite that, um, a prestige blockbuster has uh, a, it reaches for a, a you know a pretty high emotional truth, or a, a, has an intellectual kind of side, or runs or tries to go for a has a pretty strong thematic undercurrent. Um, these are a lot of films that will, except for maybe a, a film from 99 that we'll talk about later, these are going to make a lot of money no matter what. Um, they don't have to be special, but they are. Um, like if, to put it in perspective, my example of like a standard blockbuster, like a non-prestige blockbuster that kind of reaches for, reaches for low fruit, right. <clears throat> so to say, uh, I would say it's like Transformers or Independence Day or Fantastic Four or like Spider-Man 3 or something like that. So those movies that, you know, have huge lines and everybody's going to go see them and they're going to make money no matter what. But you, you can watch it and you just feel nothing. You know, you don't you don't feel um, like there was a lot of thought put into the script necessarily as far as um, anything new intellectually or emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually content to be pretty simple. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, cause that's usually what they, what they set out to be is what they end up being. And that, and that's fine. Um, uh, but like I said, a prestige blockbuster presents it emotional complexity, intellectual aptitude, um, kind of a strong narrative idea. Um, all of these, uh, all of these movies kind of, I, in my opinion, do that. And I think, I think 
the mass public has accepted them as doing that. Um, they have to be, I think they should be regarded as success in the cultural level. Um, all the films in the series have grossed uh, t- over $200 million at the box office and also have over 85% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. And as a disclaimer, I'm, no, I'm by no means saying Rotten Tomatoes is an accurate way to gauge good or bad movies. Right. You know, um, I, I do think it's an interesting site, though, and for people who aren't familiar, RottenTomatoes.com is sort of a amalgamation of uh, the most respected group of film critics, and there, there are probably some questionable names oh, yeah. on that list, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good idea of where the mass uh, of critical opinion is on a movie, at least in America. Um, exactly. And it's so, a good culture gauge. Right, exactly. And, and you know, uh, I think 85%, if you get to that level on Rotten Tomatoes, it means that, for the most part, your film's going to be called an unmitigated critical success. Yeah, it's a pretty rare thing to have something 85%. I think the average rating for, you know, the average Friday night release is usually around 65, 70% if it's if it's positive. <clears throat> and then, you know, sometimes it gets into the 2% and those are always the those are the classics. <laughs> those are worth checking out usually. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, 200 million at the box office, 85% right. on the right. tomato meter and um, let's go ahead and dive into our first film in this series. Sure. Um, hey, let me make one more disclaimer. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I don't want um, – I've already said the word smart several times, and I want to go ahead and disclaim. Um, if it, Oftentimes, if you're talking to somebody about movies and they say, oh, that movie was so smart, it's kind of like a veiled way of them saying, like, if you don't like this, you're an idiot. Or <laughs> I'm, I'm smart, and I like this movie, therefore it's smart and – you know, and it's a good. It's kind of like a a good way of patting yourself on the back, and I I don't want to do that. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to explain gracefully why a film is smart or not. But if I can't explain it, um, just assume it's a ton smarter than I am, right. and <laughs> and then that'll be it. Okay, excellent. Okay, so the first installment here um, is going to be The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, it's a movie that obviously doesn't need much introduction, like most of the films in this series will be. It's the first sequel to Star Wars. And um, I I think a lot of people would say that as big a deal as Star Wars was culturally, um, it was still kind of a a fringe nerd sci-fi thing. And I think uh, The Empire Strikes Back brought the Star Wars phenomenon to a whole other level. Um, culturally and you know within within the sort of Hollywood industry, um, it's it's the first time we saw the character Yoda. It's the it's the film we got the line Luke, I am your father from, which is you know I don't know anybody in America that doesn't know that line, um, and obviously it does fit our qualifications for a prestige blockbuster with uh, a two hundred nine point four million dollar lifetime box office. Uh, and a very impressive ninety-seven percent on the tomato meter, um, and, and this is this is just a movie that's that's such a part of of American culture today. Now, outside of of film lovers, it's just something that I think everyone is aware of, um, and, and almost so much so to the point that maybe we take it for granted. Ben, do you, do you agree with me that this film is maybe important, more important? culturally than the first star wars movie and and if so why do you think that is um it's hard to say if it is or not um 
It's uh, it's almost like a chicken for the egg kind of thing. If if Star if Star Wars hadn't been you know a huge cultural landmark, um, either Empire Strikes Back wouldn't exist, or it wouldn't necessarily be a hit. You sure. Know? And it certainly wouldn't be an assured hit, which is what you know makes it makes it interesting. Um, you know they're going to make money off of this anyway because of Star Wars's freakish success. And uh, Lucas actually put his own eighteen million dollars into it, and then had to go back to Fox, ask for more money. Um, so, but I, I can't imagine that anybody was working on it and was like, mm, "This is a real gamble." <laughs> so, like, I think, I think without Star Wars being the cultural milestone it is, it necess- you know, without it being like that, I don't think Empire would be. But I think that. So I, th- I do think Star Wars is the bigger cultural, to answer the question, I think Star Wars is a bigger cultural landmark, but I think that in the public subconscious, when uh, when referencing, if you, if you just talk to somebody on the street about Star Wars, um, I think they're in their brain they see Empire Strikes Back images. You know? I agree, yeah. I, I think they see the Vader, you know, it, on you know reaching out his hand to Luke, or, or Yoda sitting there in Dagobah, or Han and Carbonite, or Boba Fett. So all those things are introduced in Empire. Um, so I think that I think that Star Wars was a huge landmark and a big thing in, in film, I guess, in American film. But I think Empire kind of solidified the whole universe of Star Wars and this this collection of characters as a kind of subconscious cultural icon, you know, in America. Uh, it took it beyond film and kind of went for more of a just a, a collective subconscious kind of thing. Like, yeah, this is what we understand this thing to be, kind of. And obviously, you you touched on George Lucas there, and his, his you know he's he is obviously recognized as the creative force behind the Star Wars series. Um, but I want to talk about the actual director of this film, the guy in the credits as the director, um, who is a guy named Irvin Kershner. And if you've never heard of him, you're probably not alone. This is a guy who uh, didn't really do much of anything before Empire Strikes Back, and hasn't done a lot since. Um, and he was kind of plucked from obscurity by George Lucas to direct this film. Uh, and there, and there's a researching this. I found this uh, an interesting story on on his Wikipedia page actually, where before making the film, Kirshner apparently asked George Lucas, you know, why me? Why did you choose me for this production? Uh, and Lucas said, because you know everything a Hollywood director is supposed to know, but you're not Hollywood. Uh, and you know, I think that does show a little bit in this movie. I think Lucas might have been right about his his uh, reasons for choosing Kirshner to take on this movie. Ben, what what exactly do you feel like the director brings to Empire Strikes Back that maybe differentiates it from the first Star Wars movies and and, and maybe the the subsequent ones as well? Uh, real quick, I think I'm going to take that clip of you saying Lucas was right, and then I'm going to make a show. <laughs> About eighty four, and then just be like, "What do you think about it, Matt?" And then answer every question with that recording of Lucas was right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, no. <laughs> it's a rare, it's a rare thing to hear come out of my mouth for sure. Right. Well, you could you could say that it was old Lucas, it was young Lucas. So he was right. Still, uh, it's a different guy. Yeah. Still making good decisions. Um, <laughs> uh, what's interesting about Kirshner is that um, I think he was one of his inst- one of Lucas's instructors at USC too. Um, so I think a lot that Lucas kind of learned as a director, he learned from Kirshner. Um, and Kirshner kind of kind of got his cut his teeth in TV, and I think he worked with Roger Corman was one of the first people that really worked with Roger Corman, where it, the environment was you know crank out movies 
mm-hmm. um, work with what you have and crank them out. And uh, I've not seen anything that Kirshner's done aside from Empire. Uh, he directed RoboCop 2. Right. Um, he's he's actually an actor in The Last Temptation of Christ as well. So uh-oh. I've I've seen him do that. But other you know, other than that, it's you look at his IMDb filmography. Seen, it's it's seen unrecognizable. The, I've seen the Amazing Stories episode he directed called Hell Toupee. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's about a it's about a toupee that kills people. No, I mean, Hell Toupee. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh my God! I never got that pun. Hell Toupee. Yeah, so I never just said now, that. You didn't. Yeah. No, that's it. It just happened. That just happened live. Live on the video. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> but no, I've seen that one. Of, not not one of the best Amazing Stories episodes. Yeah. Uh, but I think just from what I see in Empire Strikes Back, he's he's a good director. He's a solid director. What really sets Empire apart um, and really makes it kind of a prestige thing is how he he kind of he crafts the the grammar and the performances of Star Wars like a lot differently than uh, Lucas did in. Um, episode four um and what he does is he kind of grounds it he he makes this big flashy space odyssey and molds it after very earthly stories the uh the hoth battle which i'm actually i've got going right now uh (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's it's crazy because it's it's filled with like these uh it's like filled with b-roll of like soldiers like running up to the line uh preparing to fight it's got like snap zooms to like look like soldiers like readying their their um, their arms and stuff, and it, it it looks like a World War II, like a CinemaScope World War II movie, um, or even a documentary at sometimes. Um, so he kind of really makes makes this f- crazy space battle with these uh, KKK members running around with laser guns uh, into what looks like what's shot like you know a World War II scene. Um, lots of close-ups of like young rebel soldiers fighting, kind of what they believe in. It, there, he he puts he puts a romantic notion on everything that it's not really there in episode four, which is a little bit more on the surface, except you know for Luke's story, I guess. But um, like I said, it gives it like a real life, real world point of reference, um, a, an organic quality, if you will. And the the performances, he does the same thing. He uh, in the commentary for the film, he talks about a lot that he he felt emotion was very important. Um, and you can see that in the Han and Leia romantic um, plot, they kind of they they're directed and performed, and not not like an intergalactic adventure necessarily, but like the the basic story there is the the principals are two workaholics, they feel an undeniable attraction to one another, and then they have to kind of fight that, and that's an arc, it's an emotional arc that could be lifted out of this space opera and right in, and dropped into like a a romantic comedy, you know. Sure. About socialites or something, and that's that's a pretty interesting thing, you know. That uh, this crazy space odyssey has this real life grounded, um, basic romantic plot, um, and of course uh, this goes beyond Kirshner. Lucas uh, hired Lee Brackett and uh, Lawrence Kasdan to to write the film, and uh, Lee Brackett wrote Rio Bravo, which of course is great, and uh, and. Lawrence Kasdan, of course, is from Raise the Lost Ark, and uh, again, a very good writer, very great, great writer, I would say. And they're both really good at just straight-on man-to-man kind of conflict, you know, like dialogue scenes that have a lot of conflict going on and a lot of people working out emotional issues, um, usually on a more physical, conflicting scale, if you know what I mean. Um, but like with with Lucas working on the plot and and them on dialogue and basic scenes. Um, it's no surprise that Kirshner, you know, had a lot 
a lot of good stuff to work work with. Um, but like I said, I think I think he had an insistence on emotional reality, an intense kind of uh, subconscious human desire on in every character's part, which you don't see in you know standard blockbusters. Um, Shia LaBeouf's uh, motivation in Transformers is is not so not so intense. You know, it's it's hard to relate it's, to. Yeah, in the hook, same it's way, hook up with Megan Fox is pretty exactly. Much yeah. yeah. It's not the kind of stuff that when you wake up in the morning you're worrying about, you know, right. not the kind of human basic. But in Empire well, some Strikes people, Back, some people do. But <laughs> some people, I don't want to meet those people. Yeah. Um, if that's the only thing that they <laughs> yeah. that day, uh, watch Transformers. Um, but uh, Kirshner really kind of he gets that basic human thing in what people want against what they need. You know, like Luke wants training, but he needs to save his friends. Vader wants to, you know, follow Luke and really confront him, but needs to work for the Empire. You know, his, he's got to work his deadbeat job. So I think that's a strong, a strong, smart. There's that word, um, human perspective. It's missing from from a lot of more mythically minded, straightforward films like 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 I said, like Star Wars, the Episode Four. It doesn't necessarily have this emotional reality. It's good. It's great. I mean, I, I don't want to take anything away from Star Wars. It's just different, you know. And I just want to bring up uh, one performance out of this movie, um, which is, you know, I don't know if you quite call it a traditional performance, but uh, Frank Oz, uh, who is the the sort of legendary uh, Jim Henson collaborator who performs the voice and I believe performed a lot of the puppetry for Yoda. In this film, and this is a character that, um, you know, I don't know how everybody feels about him in Empire Strikes Back. I think he that he certainly has some some comic uh, aspects to him, and I think he's he's a little funny sometimes. And uh, but I really think of any puppet character that we've ever seen on film, there are few that really get taken as seriously and treated with the the level of. I guess kind of dignity almost that Yoda gets treated with in Empire Strikes Back. I mean, this is a a character that has a deep backstory. Even though we don't learn all of it in Empire Strikes Back, you can feel the kind of weight of this character, and um, you just kind of uh, I think Frank Oz brings so much in the in the voice that he does, and in in the way that this puppet acts that makes it feel uh, you wouldn't think that a puppet appearing on screen in a movie like this would would work, but they really made it work, and and I don't really. It's almost it's hard to explain because there aren't many other puppet performances you can point to. What, what what's your take on Yoda in this film, Ben? Yeah, I think um, I think if you say the the most effective puppet with speaking lines in a serious, you know, kind of role, I think you're right. I think personally, Kermit in the Muppet movie gets a lot of my sympathy. I think it's it's he's a really strong. Character. Well, the char- you know obviously the characters in the Muppet movies, especially the good ones like the like the Muppet movie, you know they're great. And there's I don't I don't take anything away from what Jim Henson did in those films, but yeah, but it's not serious. It's, it's a not, comedy. It's, it's a comedy serious. film, yeah. And I, and I think puppets really always have lent themselves to comedy, yeah. but really here we have a dramatic puppet character. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, I think I think you're right. I think later on in another film in the series, um, we're gonna get into my personal favorite. <laughs> movie puppet, I guess, in a way, but uh, but yeah, Yoda. I mean, it's it's an extremely effective performance. 
and like I said, I'm, I'm, I've got it. Uh, I've got the film going on right now, and just in the movements and everything, and how he gets the flashlight and kind of turns around, and the, how they how they did it, and how they gave him character with those little, you know, they probably had a lot of you know um, shortcomings that they had to deal with, but they made him work, you know, and and it all kind of lends to the character well, and I think it's a I think it's a brilliant character, yeah. And I think one one thing that we might have a, an issue with on here between between you and I is. You know, I've I'm a pretty I'm a pretty vocal critic of the of the prequel trilogy. I know that's probably the popular opinion these days, but uh, you know, I really felt like making the move to make Yoda a CG character was a mistake, and I felt like uh, that was probably one of the biggest shortcomings of of the prequel trilogy was the fact that we didn't have uh, there was less of an emphasis on on the kind of makeup and practical effects. Uh, that we saw in the original trilogy, and there was a heavy emphasis on these CG-based characters. Some of them worked. Some of them, I feel like, failed miserably and really uh, are just so much less interesting to watch. And I think Yoda is one of those. I think Yoda, uh, as a CG character, seems to just be so much less interesting for me to watch than when he was a puppet. And I think like, I think they did a great job making the CG Yoda look as much like the puppet as possible, uh, even right down to some of the little sort of wiggling movements that the foam would make, but there's something missing there. And, and do, do you do you disagree with me on this? Uh, for the prequel trilogy, yeah, I think if they went back and if they CG'd Yoda into the original, which original trilogy, which I'm sure they're going to do eventually, um, I wouldn't be so crazy about that. But I think I, I think in the in the ideological war between CGI and practical effects. I think there's a middle ground. And um, I think it's whatever the story calls for and whatever the universe calls for. Uh, Yoda is is perfect for Empire Strikes Back, the way he is there, because the, the film is takes place in a rough-and-tumble kind of universe. It's been worn down by decades of war, um, and it's these two you know new r- risen orders that are duking it out to get to figure out how the galaxy is going to get run. Um, and Kirshner sets that up well and really kind of milks that tension really well in Empire. But um, but l- there's a kind of texture over everything, a kind of rough, worn texture. And Yoda completely fits in there. Um, I think in the prequel trilogy, and this is one of the, the big arguments um, for the trilogy that a lot of a lot of people might call um, an apologetic approach. But I, I think it kind of makes sense um, that everything is new and shiny and and digital looking because it's a universe that's well maintained you know it's pre-war um and it's it's clean and it's um it's not ravaged yet there's not a bunch of rust all over everything cuz it's not you know they haven't been through hell yet um and if that's the the decision that lucas made whenever he started the new trilogy then absolutely that's a decision he's got to stick with when he makes yoda imagine um a puppet yoda in the middle of a green screen um performance it's it just wouldn't work. No, there's all. no doubt that the puppet Yoda wouldn't work uh, right. in in the say the fight sequence. I think it's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to really which which is incredible. The, the well, episode three, you know, fight. I don't know. It, it's, here here's oh. how here's how I would ultimately say I feel about the whole Yoda thing. There, I think uh, you know it's not a it's not a totally bad idea. Uh, I just think 
whatever I, I don't even know if the, if it could have possibly worked. I don't think they necessarily did anything wrong, but it's kind of you know to make a football analogy, it's kind of like it's kind of like trying to run a, a fake punt, uh, you know, late in a tight game, and you know maybe it was a great idea, but they it, it just didn't work. It just for whatever reason, due to no fault of of Lucas's or anybody else's. Uh, it just doesn't seem to work to me, and and I I think well if it's no fault of Lucas's and it doesn't work to you, whose fault do you think it is? <laughs> Are you going to say it's the viewer's fault? No, I'm saying it's your fault, Matt. Oh, me personally, right? <laughs> but well, no, yeah, I think I think you do. And I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling the way you feel, but I think I do think that you are bringing something to it that isn't there. You know, that doesn't necessarily ask to be there. You know what I'm saying? Well, do you mean my my predisposition towards a puppet Yoda since I have seen the empire strikes back. Like, but the, the problem with that argument, Ben, is that, that everyone who's seen the prequel trilogy has seen the empire strikes back. It is, it is necessary. Right. But, but everybody who's seen the prequel, I mean, but it's a decision that's made in the first film and they're, they're going to stick with it. Right. So your, your issue is with the fact that they went completely digital with the whole trilogy anyway, right? You know, I think it's mostly... With this I, argument, I'm okay. Pull. I'm okay with some of the CG characters. I think some of them work, and I, I think the CG is beautiful in a lot of cases. I think I, I really like what they did with... I mean, we could go on forever about the prequel trilogy. I really <laughs> like what they did with a lot of the, the set pieces and yeah. a lot of the locations. Um, but I just think, and obviously Jar Jar is the one everybody points at, but I, I feel like the... I feel like there was something lost in the translation oh, of Yoda between between the puppet and the CG. Well, I'm not going to argue that Jar Jar is a strong character, but I th- <laughs> I don't know if anything was lost with Yoda. Now, but again, that that may be me bringing something to it in that I didn't grow up with the Star Wars trilogy. Um, I didn't see the original films until um, I was pr- pretty old. I was like 13 or 14, and then I and I saw them in bits and pieces, and then I saw the the re-releases. So I didn't really have like um, I didn't have a Yoda built in my mind when I saw Attack of the Clones and he was fully digital, you know? Right. Um, it it didn't really it didn't really move me one way or the other. And then you know I was fully supportive of Episode three, so I was like, okay, yeah, that's that's Yoda works for me, great. And then so I, I don't really you know so that, again that's that's me as the viewer bringing something to the film. Oh. Um, it sways my opinion one way or the other. Fair enough there. Um, and, and just to close, I I think we'll probably make this a regular feature in this series uh, to close out the podcast. But, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you think, uh, either specifically or in general, has been the sort of lasting effect of Empire Strikes Back? Do you see um, influences or specific effects that that film has had on, on movies still today or on our culture? Um, yeah, I think I think if you look back at the highest grosser of 2006, um, the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, that is a direct ripoff. I mean, it's not even like an homage; it's just a ripoff <laughs> of, uh, of Empire Strikes Back. You know, where the where there's a a, a shaky love triangle, and uh, and at the end, the roguish antihero sacrifices himself for the greater good, um, and it's. Uh, it's not so good, but you can tell that you know it's made a, a lasting impact from not just that, but there's so many movies that are structured after this. You know, every time a dark sequel comes out, everybody's like, "It's the Empire Strikes Back of the series." Right. People say, you know, about 
I think X2, uh, <laughs> Wrath of Khan, and uh, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Right. Um, no, no. Still awaiting that the the close to that <laughs> yeah, epic trilogy. We need our climactic battle at the end of that trilogy. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think, and and that's one thing that it's really done is that um, before before it, well, ever since that, people it's kind of taken away the sti- stigma of uh, no, but the sequels had kind of a stigma before Empire Strikes Back, and and since then still kind of of being kind of usually their sequels are shallow kind of cash grabs. Um, and this film kind of everybody is everybody's argument against that stereotype, um, even though that before Empire Strikes Back there had been sequels for years and good sequels. Um, you know, the the Four Musketeers is a movie that's better than the first, the Three Musketeers, the Lester movies, and but nobody really talks about that. But I guess on Godfather a huge two. Godfather Two again, yeah, good point. Um, and, but on a huge scale, it's the one that kind of set it apart. And everybody now, you know, it's it's the argument again, uh, argument for I guess sequels, even though like a billion good sequels have been released since since then. But I think I think that's one of its big legacies, um, and it just it, it just informs the the mainstream kind of blockbuster form um, that exists. It, it it guides it, and, and most people reference. Either Raiders of the Lost Ark or Empire Strikes Back. I think when they're setting out to make a big, you know, Hollywood production, I, or maybe they don't, and then they make good, good movies. But when they make bad movies, I think they're they're kind of modeling it after Empire Strikes Back. Excellent. Well, Ben, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us for this first installment in this series, and we look forward to the uh, the other five parts, which will be uh, available here on FilmNerds.com. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.